is the Requiem Metal Podcast, episode 17, Choosing Death. Welcome to the Requiem Metal Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Honey. I'm Mark Rudolph. And joining us again for another wonderful opportunity. Uh, Chris. Chris Dick is here. Yes. And uh, we're going to be talking again with uh, with Albert about his book, uh, Choosing Death, which uh, I think you wrote, correct? Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't confirm that, but... You can neither confirm nor I can neither confirm that. You know, speculation... <laughs> Uh, insists that I may have written parts of it. Yeah, and rumor has it it's about metal. It is. It is. It's about some metal. It's about some death metal. It's about some grindcore. Cool. Yeah, we heard because we we do this metal podcast thing. Maybe you've heard about. <laughs> and, uh, so we, we were told to talk to you and get in touch with you. I've heard good things about it. Yeah. But uh, no, actually, we're uh, going to talk to him just sort of about his experiences. You know, kind of getting. We already heard uh, in a previous podcast about some of your early, you know, gateway experiences getting into metal and, and some of that stuff, but. Maybe like you know a connector in terms of where you went from being a fan in the early '90s to all of a sudden you know publishing a book. You know, like what 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 got you to the point where you're like, gosh, I I got to document all this and write a book and fly around the world and talk to people. And, and you know, I don't I don't remember it ever being like kind of a conscious decision in, in that sense where you know uh, the thought of getting into. I bristle even saying this rock journalism um, would kind of like you know get to the point where there would be you know publishing books and magazines and things like that um, I mean for me it kind of started where you know as we talked about earlier you know just a fan of this stuff uh, in the early 90s and just got like you know as the early 90s kind of turned into the mid 90s got like really even further deeper into the underground and Really, you know, in a head up your ass kind of way, honestly, you know, like where it was like, oh, I don't want the domestic version of this CD, you know, like I will pay the extra ten dollars to have <laughs> this logo on the back of it, you know, mm-hmm. just like yeah, stuff that I'm sure none of you can relate to. Um, no idea, <laughs> none whatsoever. Um, looking at eBay, <laughs> we were perusing eBay earlier and looking at uh, what. Gourmet. I had four know. copies of Battles in the North. <laughs> so, so yeah, so you know, I was that guy too, and still am. But you know, for, it was just this kind of thing. I was working at uh, a local record store in uh, Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from, which is part of Northeast PA. Mm-hmm. It's not much going on there. Um, this was kind of like a mid-sized record chain called the Gallery Sound. It was fine. Uh, but they had this uh, monthly magazine newspaper thing called the Gallery of Sound Gazette. And they were a general audience publication and so they would cover stuff that was across the board. They'd cover pop rock, you know, indie rock, alternative, uh, uh, Hip hop, and they had in the back of the bus, of course, where it belongs, is a metal section. And there was basically this one guy whose name was Michael Draper, and he wrote these reviews. He would cover bands, like he would write about like Cathedral and Carcass and My Dying Bride and D 
Dio and just like a, across the board stuff. Uh, but he like he was a very enthusiastic writer who you could tell he liked metal, but he <laughs> he had this style about him where he was a very gimmicky writer. So he would do these things like. Uh, he would have like he would take like a, a cathedral review, and he would write the review um, as a conversation between like Satan and like a guy from Scranton, <laughs> and you know it was the kind of thing like it would maybe work once, but the guy would write like five reviews a month, and like three of them would be like that. Kind of a Gene Shalit kind of right. Okay. Like, yeah. yeah. So I was just you know it was the kind of thing where. I was this guy who was like uber underground elitist, really, and uh, I was just were. like, okay. you know, I was just like, it's like, what is, what, what's happening here? Why is this guy doing this? This is, this is horrible. This is happening. This is great music that people need to know about. You know, blah. Well, he's blah, kind blah, of mocking blah. it almost, maybe. Or, or yeah, yeah. To, I mean, you know. yeah, but I, it, I, he he probably wasn't even, but I felt like he was at the time, at least, and um, so. You know, I, I complained to the owner of the chain. I was just like, "This is this is a total bummer." It's like, you know, I was like, "I know about this stuff. I could write about it." And he's like, "All right, well, why don't you um, um, you write some reviews, and I'll give them to the guy who publishes it, and we'll see what happens." So I wrote uh, like two reviews, literally, like just on like legal paper. It was like, "Is Cannibal Corpse Vile?" and "Dissection Storm of the Lights Bane," and. Um, I wrote, you know, I wrote reviews both, and like a couple of days later, the guy who ran uh, this publication came into the warehouse and he was like, "Hey, you know, I really like these. Uh, can you do some more?" I said, "Okay." Uh, and the guy was uh, Alex Mulcahy, who you guys met a couple hours ago, um, who um, I've worked with now for eleven years. Um, but that was twelve. That was twelve years ago that that happened. It was actually July of '96, and um, you know I was still working at this warehouse. I was going to school full time, um, and you know began writing these record reviews on the side. Uh, I was going to school for. I had no idea what I was doing. I was going to school for human resource management, and. Um, <laughs> Pretty much what you do now, right? Yeah, uh, in some ways I do. It's totally true. Um, but you know, I was doing this, and I was just kind of like, you know, I was 21 years old, feeling my way around things, and um, I don't know. Like, I, I was. I vividly remember having like this phone conversation with Alex, where he was like, um, "So, are you really interested in managing humans?" And their resources, <laughs> and I was like, you know, when you, when you kind of lay it out like that, no, I don't really care about humans or their resources, you know, or managing them in any way. Um, and it was like at that moment, it was like, you know, I'm really enjoying this writing. I'm really enjoying, you know, writing about metal specifically and music. And and I was like, you know, maybe I'll become an English major. You know, that sounds like another lucrative career choice. <laughs> And, you know, I told my parents, like, great, great idea. Switch to an English major. More money. Yeah. Know. It'll be loaded. Um, so I did that. And um, I guess it was about four months after that, Alex was like, you know, I'm running, I'm running the magazine. The magazine was growing. He was getting more um, uh, other chains he was publishing magazines for, too. So he was getting a little busy. He's like, why don't you come in and 
could do some stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I guess I guess I got a job because uh, I never left. Um, <laughs> and so you know, I became an editor of these general audience publications, and of course, I'd write all the metal reviews and kind of edit that section, but edit the whole magazine, kind of sure. put it together cohesively. Yeah. And, um, so that was nineteen. That was April of or March of nineteen ninety seven. And um, so you know, I, I was covering metal for you know, in addition to other stuff. I actually got to do like uh, interview people who most people would think would be kind of cool. I guess like I've interviewed Radiohead and um, I don't know Green Day, Moby, um, just like things like that. You know, the White Stripes. Sure. Like yeah. bands that like people who are listening to this could care less about. <laughs> but bands that like, you know, if like, you know, you met somebody at a bar or something and you told like, whoa, really? What's Tommy work like? And you're like, yeah. oh, he's got one weird eye. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, so. Uh, you, heard it her, you heard it here first. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I was covering metal, writing about bands, co- seeing the scene evolve, you know, and um, just doing my thing. And like, in in 2000, Earache released this uh, box set. I don't know if you remember it, this immortalized box set. Mm-hmm. And um, it was like this, it's like in a paint can. Time capsule kind of Yeah, thing. yeah. For the year 2000. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Hugh Brian. So I uh, I decided like you know I'll do an interview with Digby for this for, for about this box set because you know it's like I could talk about Eric Records be cool you know so I interviewed Digby and I did like this thousand word piece that was basically like kind of like the history of Eric Records and the and you know the ups and the downs and like you know the in 2000 how metal was starting to come back a little bit and they were getting their feet again you know with their Wicked World imprint and blah 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 um, so Alex you know um, you know he was still the publisher and obviously did a lot of editing too we worked really closely on it he's like you know there's like he's like you know there's a skeletal outline of a book in here about this stuff and I was like yeah that's great I don't like that <laughs> You know, I was like, that sounds like fun for somebody who isn't me someday to do that. Um, but like, you know, it's like I believe him. I was like, you know, there is. And it's like it's the year 2000 and nobody's written a book about death metal and grindcore. And, you know, Lords of Chaos was out. Yeah. Um, and granted, that isn't a history, but mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a book. It, it about, drew enough. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's, a, yeah. it's a big book about black metal. Um, and, you know, there were a few other good music history books American Hardcore wasn't out yet um, but anyway so I kind of like put it off out of sheer laziness mm-hmm. or fear um, until it was really January of 02 where I was like okay nobody's done this yet this book still doesn't exist it was like the kind of thing well you know I know I've got this idea in my head I'll give it a, a year or so and if somebody else, if somebody will, do else will do it and then when nobody else did it it was like damn it I have to do this. Do so, you know, I just I just set out that uh, that I do it and just started kind of outlining who should who should you know who I should talk to, mm-hmm. and you know began process of tracking people down and getting contact information and going from A to B and uh, you know it definitely led to, to really interesting things um, when it uh, when it got rolling like 
you know, I get like Jeff Walker's home phone number. From Carcass? Yeah, yeah. from like Martin Nesbitt, their old manager. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, what do I do? You know, yeah. I'd be talking to him. He's like, just call. And I'd be like, but it's Jeff Walker from Carcass. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, yeah, just call him. So I like, you know, I'd call and uh, I left like a voice or a, a message on his answering machine. And, um, you know, he he like emailed me. I like I left my email on the voice on the message too, just to like you know because I didn't expect him to call me back. Or mm-hmm. And like he emailed me like later that day, and he was like, you know, sorry, uh, sorry I didn't get the phone. I was I was hoovering. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm like I'm like oh my god, Jeff Walker runs a vacuum. <laughs> you know, Jeff Walker goes to the bathroom. Right. Yeah. And, 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 so. You know, it became, like, that started to happen. And then all of a sudden, these people who were just, you know, iconic growing up, like, you know, whether it was, like, Jeff or Mick Harris or, you know, even Barney Greenway or Nick Anderson or these people who were just, like, parts of these bands that you love so much. And all of a sudden, it was, like, it was different because, you know, you know, you know, like I said, I interviewed, you know, the Radioheads and, you know, Ian McKay's and, like... But you're not people. you're not worshiping at the altar, like no. But I mean, I love yeah. those. I mean, yeah. I love those bands. But like, there's there there was something different. You well, know? they're not all over MTV. They're not rock stars. But there's there's still like a mystical quality. That's the thing. To them. There is that. There was there was definitely a mystical element, and this was you know the the, the long process that still goes on of demystifying them, um, mm-hmm. and um, for better or for worse, really. Um, so. Anyway, so that, that that started to happen, and I started to piece it together. Um, and basically, I did. Uh, I, I, I you know I, I had like a book where I wrote down everybody who I thought I should try to contact, and you know all these names. And it was probably like forty names. Yeah. When I started, and then it was like sixty names, and it was like eighty names, and it was like hundred names. <laughs> And then it was like, oh my god! Like I'm just, and I was like, I was like, I'm not even going to think about writing this. I'm just going to do interviews. I'm just going to contact people. I'm going to do interviews. I'm going to write transcriptions. And I literally did that for a year without writing a word of the book. It was just you just did get interviews. the pieces. Yeah, yeah. It was like get you know get the story because the story is going to come directly from these people, mm-hmm. and the story is either going to be their quotes or you know. Uh, reshaping their quotes into prose and like putting it all together so I need to get the story from them so I know it's right um, so I didn't so I didn't do any interviews at all and, I mean I didn't do any any uh, writing on the transcription yeah yeah it was it was only transcriptions I had it was such a you know I'd work all day I'd come home I'd do an interview and I would do a couple hours of transcription yeah every night for like a year wow um, and let me tell you, it's it's a small miracle that I've had the same relationship I've had with my girlfriend <laughs> this whole time. Yeah, it's got a little strained for a couple of years. I will say that she's very patient. Yeah, yeah, she got an she gets an extra extra special thanks in the book. Um, but yeah, I mean that was like that was kind of the beginnings of it, you know, the process. And I didn't have I didn't have a publisher. There was no guarantee. I didn't know who was going to put it out. I was just like, I just have to do this, and then we'll figure it out. And Alex, you know, the publisher, um, Decibel, and Decibel didn't exist then, um, who published those other magazines I talked about, mm-hmm. uh, he, he was always like, look, you know, 
if you can't find anybody to put it out, we'll figure out a way to just get it out there into the world. Yeah. Like, so it was like, it was kind of a cool safety net where you thought like, all right, even if I go to some publishers and nobody cares about this book, um, you know, my friend and I will find a way to get this thing out. Um, so uh, it probably wasn't, I didn't, I didn't even like really begin searching for a uh, publisher until probably 60% of the book was written mm-hmm. and I bought I bought this book called I literally bought a book called uh, Getting Your Book Published for Dummies <laughs> that I found at at um, um, at like Barnes and Noble or something yeah. and like it like you know and this was like I'd had I'd done all these interviews and I'd written all this stuff already and like as I was reading it's like apparently everything I'm doing is incorrect yeah. you know like you're supposed to like write one chapter and then do this and send out these kind of samples to these kinds of people and stuff like that <laughs> but like you know I, I guess I did get something out of the book but you know most of these things were either about fiction like pitching fiction books yeah, or, yeah. You know, yeah sure pitching, pitching non-death metal or <laughs> history books um, so um, I mean, to a degree, all the the interviews kind of shaped the direction and the narrative kind of flow of the book oh, as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Because I was, so was going to ask more of that done before you could just like, okay, here's my sample chapter. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it's like, you know, I mean, like I knew, I knew as much as we all knew going into it, but like I found out I didn't know anything. Like by the time you're like doing all these interviews, and it's like, really, this is how this happened, and like. Like, I'd get off the phone, and it was like every interview was like a revelation. It was like, really? Those guys were responsible for this? Or, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it could have been done any other way, really. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I was going to ask you about, like, kind of how did you decide on the, I guess, the focus or the thesis of the book? Did it just, did it, did it, you allow it to sort of find its own focus? Or, because, you know, you look at, like, you mentioned Lords of Chaos, mm-hmm. um, which has been accused of, you know, at times being a little on the sensationalistic side. And, I mean, you know, you could have, you know, done, you could have, like, made that appeal to, you know, talk about violence and death metal and, and really sort of try to sell the book right. before it was sold. How did you decide to 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 take the direction you did? Was it because you didn't want to burn bridges because you were such a big fan or? Um, I don't, I just, I guess I just had a vision in my head that it was going to be an historical document like yeah you pretty much took any uh, any of your own because you yeah you took a lot of yourself out of it in some ways yeah it's just like chronicling yeah because I mean you have to have it it becomes it's difficult because you want to have you have to remain impartial but you need to have some kind of voice that shows you're truly enthusiastic about this stuff so you don't want to I mean like choosing death is a little dry Um, and I'm fine with that because I think that the characters in the book are really interesting I think mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I think reading like a Trey Zagthoth quote or a Mick Harris quote or a Jeff Walker quote I think that's like that's like where the the entertainment and like like kind morbid of morbid like, angel washing your car right like, this still yeah, sticks like with stories. me you know like, like it just it sticks with me yeah you know? I mean they're, they're they're great stories mm-hmm. and you know uh, yeah it's like you have to you have to kind of find that balance and, and remove yourself and let the the participants who were there let them tell the stories because I wasn't there you know um, so I don't want to get it wrong and I mean that's one thing and then you know they've got the better stories um, how did you decide what, how did you decide on what era to pursue I guess like when did you know the book kind of had to end like how did you figure that out you know I mean obviously the origins are easy enough with Sabbath or you know whatever Venom mm-hmm. and you know moving forward but you know 
what did you say to yourself? Like, I can't go past this many pages or... or? No, I I didn't really have a page count in mind. I mean, there was some editing done to, like, kind of slim it down. Mm -hmm. I'd rather it be, like, too short than too long and be, like, something just exhausting that people never get through. Um, But uh, as far as reaching an ending, it was just, like... It was to the present at that time, you know? It was, like, to, like, around 2003. Mm -hmm. 2003, 2004 when it was getting finished and um, the things that had kind of happened in the music industry at large and the metal scene and you know I wanted to I guess I wanted to talk about like I, I wanted to obviously talk about the origins and talk about like what an impact this made but I also didn't want it to seem like it was existed in some kind of bubble like this was Something only in ninety one or yeah, or or only to like yeah. you know the four people in this room, you yeah. know, like this was something that like because of death metal you had something like Slipknot, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like you had something that like uh, created this multi million selling brand or band yeah. or whatever, and well, you like legitimize the whole. I mean, like. Just somebody that had no idea this genre even existed could go and read this book and kind of figure out where things led. It wasn't just this sensationalistic, you know, ten year span or something. Yeah, well, I gave mean, it wings, you know, yeah. in a way. Yeah, well, I mean, the other thing too is it's 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 honestly not that sensational of a story. It, it's more of a interesting story of the music business. There there isn't there isn't the sex, there isn't the drugs, there isn't the murder, there isn't the arson, there isn't the suicide. I mean, these are like the thing about death metal guys is there. They're average dudes, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, they have, they'll have their postal worker jobs. Yeah, or they have, they'll have, the, you know, they're they're eclectic and they'll have their their ticks, if you will, <laughs> some of them. But like, you know, you're not going to get. It, it wasn't hard to not like to to try to avoid being sensationalistic. I mean, I guess you could have. Like, there were things I did consciously avoid, like. Like, I didn't want to put, like, Glenn Benton on the cover of the book. Yeah. yeah. Even though uh, the French edition, which is right under there, they put Glenn Benton on the cover. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, but, like... That wasn't your decision, though? No. Nah. The publisher. And they just do whatever once you have, like, a foreign edition. It's gotcha. kind of out of your hands. Um, but, you know, just... I, I wanted it to, like... I wanted it to just to exist as a great story, as, like, a great piece of history and uh, of a musical movement. Like, I didn't want it encumbered by any of that other stuff sure now what was what's what's been the response not only from fans but like maybe from the participants were they all pretty did they feel like oh you treated it fairly it was you know a pretty warm reception yeah no it was it was surprisingly positive um uh you know of course some people i'm friends with will you know the the I definitely take some jabs and abuse for certain things that are in there or you know how much of somebody is in there and how little or how much I spent on some album or whatever Mm -hmm. but I mean the the, the, like the people were genuinely just like really appreciative you know that like that somebody did take the time to document it that it like you know they felt it helped legitimize them I remember Mm -hmm. talking to Carl Sanders about it and he was just so excited that he's like I can go to a store I can go to a big store in my you know neighborhood and there's a book that I'm in right there on the shelf. I mean, Carl, God bless him, he's a bit of an ego. But, like, you know, it, it's, it's, but it's that idea. I mean, I know that, I know that Walker was psyched that his 
that he's like one of the people on the cover. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's because it is, it, it like, it, not that they weren't legitimate before. I mean, obviously it, it makes was. makes a lot it, of those sacrifices and the, the crap years and the heartaches. I mean, death metal didn't make a lot of money. These guys aren't millionaires, right. you know, but it, it, again, gives them yeah. validity. Yeah, it was like somebody cared and somebody, yeah. like, didn't want to forget about this, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And um, so, they like, they were really happy because nobody else was, nobody else did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, the reaction's been really well, really good from, like, you know, the just general public I mean it's sold really well and um, I mean I'm like just like musicians aren't getting rich off it I'm not getting rich off it either yeah, yeah. Um, but you know it's been successful and people seem to like it and people still MySpace me like oh I just read your book I'm like really? cool <laughs> you know like it's great well you got the best pull quote ever the Richard Christie <laughs> is that amazing? First, yeah, I, you couldn't ask for better. Well, that was and that, that happened Perfect. in person. I met, that really? was when you you introduced me to him, Chris. That, that was at, that was at Metal Fest. Yeah, yeah, that's when you walked me over to him, and he was all loaded. Bombed up. He was bombed when that quote was given. But I have a feeling he didn't make that up. But that was. Um, but no. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm you know really happy I got to do it, and it's yeah. still out there. And you know, there's definitely presented me with some opportunities and you know since it's been out but obviously presented me with great opportunities to meet these people and yeah. you know establish you know become friends with a few of them um, and you know to have the opportunity to have you know get to work with John Peel was yeah, just crazy yeah. you know wow. I mean that's a that was I was like so intimidated to get that together and it, it really took actually a lot of work to get it together and kind of like because I had to work through his agent who was just like really like giving me the super runaround. and then when I guess she eventually went to John and said hey look this guy wants to do a book and wants to interview you and um, it like once once she actually finally asked him about it he was like just have him call me mm-hmm. you know and so I like call John Peel at home and like do this interview with him mm-hmm. uh, originally because there's like some quotes from him in the book mm-hmm. uh, and this is a great interview and you know, we had this great talk and you know I was just really appreciative when I was going to have to phone with him and he's like look you know if you need anything else for this just call me it's like you have my number just call me and I was like okay awesome you know yeah. so then you got like, the forward from him yeah, yeah so then like six months later you know I was like it'd be pretty amazing if I get him to write the forward for this so you know, I call like I'm like I'm just like trying to psych myself up to call him to like <laughs> to do this. So I do it. I call him, and I have this huge like wind up, like about like you know like how I think it would just be like the most amazing thing in the world, and like how like just you know I was like I don't expect you to say yes, and you know all this stuff, and um, he's like yeah no problem. It's like I'm totally into it. I'll do it, and I just like. Really? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, sure. He's like, I th- he's like, I think it'll be great. Just you know, tell me when you need it and how many words, and we'll do it. And um, <laughs> and then the next part uh, began uh, harassing him to actually do it mm. because I was like coming up on a deadline and he was late, so I'd have to call him. 
So I have to call John Peel and annoy John Peel. I was going to say, and you feel yeah. bad, like, bugging yeah. John Peel. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm really sorry to trouble but Mr. Was, Peel, but I kind of need this. You know, it, was, it was amazing because, like, you know, he lived with his, uh, his wife, Sheila, on this farm. And um, I would call. And... You know, I'd be like, John, I need you forward, dude. He's like, I'm. He's like, this is the weekend, you know. And then like another weekend would go by, and I would call, and it got to the point where Sheila, his wife, recognized my voice. It was like the nice American boy who was calling, yeah. and she knew that I was trying to get that the book forward out of him. So like, there's like times I would call, and she was like, Has he not finished that book forward for you yet? <laughs> And I was like, um, I was like, no, just calling and trying to get him to do it. She's like, I'm going to make sure he does that. And I was like, okay, awesome, you know. Um, and eventually, you know, he did it. And he faxed it over, and I still have the the fax um, in my office in there, which there's a cover letter to it, which is amazing, which I can't um, really mention on the G-rated podcast. Oh, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> it's PG-rated. <laughs> it's PG. It's, it's PG. It's Red Dawn. It's PG-13. <laughs> Wolverines. But, um, uh, so, so he sent it, and it was, it was, it was great. And I was like, look, you know, I know we hadn't talked about this, but, you know, I want to, um, I want to, you know, give you some kind of compensation for this. You know, I was like, I want to definitely, because, you know, he took time to do this, and it's really good and everything. And he was like, no, nah. he's like, don't give me anything. He's like, I don't want any money. It's, it's cool. And I'm like, I got to do something. I was like, can I just like donate like a couple hundred pounds in your name or something? He's like, it's no problem. Don't worry about it. And I was just like, oh my God, what am I going to do, you know? So I remember like a week later, I like called and asked, I like asked to speak to Sheila and I explained the whole thing to her. I'm like, look, he won't take any money or anything and I feel really bad, so... I was like, what does he like? Can I buy him a present? She's like, he loves red wine. I'm like, red wine, huh? And she's like, yeah. She's like, she's like, if you send him a bottle of red wine or something, he'll be psyched. And I was like, okay, cool. So the next task begins, like, figuring out where there's, like, a winery in... I can't, rem- I can't remember the town that he lived in. I mean, I have the address somewhere still, but I can't remember the name of the town, but it was, like, a podunk, like... British Village and like I, I had to call a couple wineries and I eventually found one and I explained like you know I need these sent to John Peel and they're like yeah you need these sent to John Peel great <laughs> and I was like no look this is this is you're like some psycho right yeah, and yeah. I, I explained the whole thing and like eventually they were like cool and they sent him wine and um, you know and I'm guessing he got it and mm-hmm. But I, and then you know the book came out, or I got advanced copies of the book, and I sent him one. And it was literally like a couple weeks later that he he died. Uh, so I never spoke with him after he got it or anything. So, mm-hmm. but you know, hmm. he's just an amazing guy. And like I just like when I tell British people that story, it blows their minds <laughs> because you know he is just like oh, yeah, like for yeah. for what 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 he meant to that country. Yeah, absolutely, he's a national hero. Yeah. It's still crazy to me that he was such a proponent of grindcore. Yeah, I mean, just at that that kind of level. Yeah, and it wasn't and it wasn't like an irony thing. No, or like no. You know. I think you can honestly kind of see. You know, I saw the future. This is yeah. I mean, like yeah. this is a legitimate path that will exist. You know, and, mm-hmm. and I don't know, have a big role in, in you know a genre of music down the road. Right. You know. Was he was he amongst the most unique people you met? I mean, who, who were like who was maybe the most unique person or like 
strangest or just like totally different than what you thought they would be like or is there any unique kind of well there's so many different personalities out there and then the other thing is you know you talk to people who are on different sides of the industry too you know like Mm -hmm. tracking down all those people who were at Columbia where the Columbia earache thing was like a really interesting thing like one of the guys the David Kahn guy was um He's like a high, super high-end producer who's produced tons of platinum records and like plays with like Paul McCartney and stuff and like writes like co-writes songs with Paul McCartney and stuff. And he was like, he was like one of the main A and R guys uh, at Columbia at the time who like pushed that deal through to make that happen. Um, so like just like talking to that guy and like getting getting their impressions about like things and. You know, I mean, like, those kinds of things were even, like, you know... I mean, it was definitely cool, like, you know, talking to the early grindcore death metal progenitors and stuff. But, like, these people who had just, like, a, a really different perspective and were at such a different place with it. You know, I mean, the, but there's so many compelling, like, characters. I mean, Digby's a compelling character. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jim Welch ran the U.S. Eric office. And, um, you know, Hammy at Peaceville and... Obviously, Mick, Mick Harris is like such a strong, strong personality and such a driving force for um, how how the scene and and the style evolved. That like, you know, when I think of grindcore, I think of Mick Harris. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, I know there's so many other pieces to it, but like, just because he's such a dominating personality, um, and you know, he's like, yeah, you know, he, he burned a lot of bridges, with a lot of people, and. <laughs> But, you know, uh, Mickey's always been awesome to me. Um, he's kind of got a Lars Ulrich kind of like just, you know, I mean, he's almost like Lars Ulrich's like the driving personality, like thrash metal, almost, right. you know, in a way. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely see that. Just, you know. Yeah. Anything... Uh, better hair. <laughs> anything, anything that you um, regret kind of taking or putting in or you regret not being able to include in the book that you would have liked to or... Uh, I mean, there's some, there's some, like, elements and some things I wish I spent a little bit more time on. I honestly wish I spent a little more time on, like, you know, something like Holland and, like, talking mm. a bit more about, like, a band like Pestilence and, you know... Every little niche and, yeah. That's the band that you like? A six? Yes, Aspects. Yeah, six. Well, yeah. on the Dutch scene, yeah. the band that preceded all those bands was Thanatos. Yes. So, I mean, you know... That would be a band to really talk about because they were the ones who inspired mm. the pestilences and the asphyxes and the across the shans. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. You, you got to know where to cut the fat on a project. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. And it's that a is, concise read, too. I, I read it in two days. It's in, so right. that's, for me, that's quick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I thought it was a great read. I mean, I yeah, no, it was yeah. excellent. Not to sort of that's jump, jump, jump the thread jack, if you want to call it that. <laughs> um, I thought it was a great read because. You know, it kept your interest, and the way it was written, it was a page. You know, it was a page turner. You know, you could actually just, you know, you knew some of these things happened at the time, but you know, you didn't see the connectivity between those things like Nile and Morbid Angel. You didn't understand how those how those two bands were related, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding how the scene sort of came together was really a cool thing to behold. You know, in two hundred plus pages, or whatever it was. You know? I'd say it's probably made. You know, at least I know for Mark and I go back and buy so much old stuff that we either had and sold or just skipped over at oh, the yeah. time. I mean, it's really made us go back and fill in a lot of gaps and, and stuff like that. Else. Right. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, I mean, it did for me, too, even when I was putting some stuff together. There were some records I didn't 
like have at that time mm-hmm. or maybe appreciate it because you didn't understand yeah. what their role was or why why you should even care about you know certain records or something right you know, until yeah. it's put into context so what no ever <laughs> <laughs> ever knows what i said probably uh, chris is up to some and, and um you're you're doing another well, a book, but you're not actually writing the book from scratch this time. This Hall of Fame book. No, what's, uh, what's, just give us a little maybe background on this, just for people listening who might be curious to get more information about metal. Okay. Um, well, Decibel has a, we have a monthly feature called the Hall of Fame, which um, really seems to be the most popular feature of the magazine where we take a classic record uh, and interview everybody who played on that album and get them to basically talk about you know, the writing and the recording process and the thought process and the aftermath and just of the record and everything that was going on around it. Um, and they become, you know, they're, they're pretty definitive pieces surrounding a, a piece of music. Um, we're going to compile uh, 25 of them into a book uh, and try to expand each one of them as best we can and pull out some things about them to make them a little more interesting. Uh, to people who maybe have already read them. Um, that's going to come out next year uh, on DeCapo Press, which is this kind of literary press, really, in New York that does... Uh, I guess the thing that they're probably best known for is they have a, uh, an anthology called uh, Best Music Writing that comes out every year, which is like they compile the best just music journalism. <laughs> and uh, I'm proud to say we actually have a piece that's going to be in it this year. Oh, cool. Which uh, one? It's uh, uh, Jay Bennett's piece on uh, underground black metal versus commercial black metal. Yeah, I just reread that actually the other day. It's, uh, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, you know, I, I, there's other ones I maybe choose over, but it's still really cool and, you know, Bennett obviously deserves it. Um, but um, they're going to, we're going to do this hopefully next year and there's going to be 25 of them uh, and my goal is to do uh, you know, 24 of them that have run previously in Decibel and do one that's only going to run in this mm-hmm. book. You know, kind of like the bonus track. I but guess. you can't probably tell us what that is yet. No, because I haven't figured it out. I was actually trying to get, <laughs> I was trying to get Neurosis to do one because they've been, they'd been shooting down um, doing Through Silver and Blood for mm-hmm. years. Yeah. So I kind of went back to... Um, Scott Kelly, who I'm very friendly with, and I was like, look, dude, we're doing this, and I'd take Souls at Zero, I'd take Times of Grace, I just think it'd be awesome to do something like this, and he tried to rally them. And then no, about it. No, no, no. Hmm. So, I, I, gotta, I gotta figure out, there's a couple that I'm thinking, but it, I want it to be good, but I also want it to, you know, it's weird, it's kind of, kind of a weird thing, because you don't want to, like, Put like a crappy bonus track on there. Yeah, you know you got. You want it to be predictable either, yeah. though. I mean, I you want a surprise, but I'm just for all. I'm injustice for all. We're mm. actually trying to do a Hall of Fame for Injustice for All right now. That would be the cover story of our December issue mm-hmm. because our December issue comes out in November. November 08 will be the 20th anniversary of Injustice for All. Wow. And the issue that's out in November is going to be the 50th issue, if we keep going, uh, of Decibel. Um, you better. So. I have a subscription. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we, we, we don't want to break hearts or, or, or agreements, binding agreements. Um, so, you know, we're trying to get that done. I don't know if it's going to happen. 
and that would kind of coincide. I don't even know when the new Metallica record's coming out. It's coming out in September. Yeah, so I mean, it's yeah, all I mean, very well, timely. You know? Yeah, you know, it'd be a good excuse to not have to talk about the new Metallica record. It would be. So even though Rick yeah, put it in context. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, let's not talk about Metallica. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> At least not new Metallica. But yeah, that's the plan for uh, that book. It's going to be called Precious Metal, um, and. <laughs> It's uh, there's a subtitle that I don't remember. Um, I have it written down somewhere, but I'm sure it's really. And those are all going to be expanded versions of the original. That's the plan. With including like <laughs> photos and all that kind of stuff. As well. There's not going to be many photos. I'm ta- when talking with DeCapo, they want to keep okay. it very text heavy, like a really anthology kind hmm. of thing. I mean, okay. I had it in my head originally. I wanted it to be like a big coffee table book that would yeah. have like all kinds of stuff in it. But like, Color photos, yeah. But you know the production costs. I couldn't find any publisher that would like yeah. agree to take it on. And I, I approached a few people. Um, I never approached Fairlouse actually. Now that I think, but um, uh, hopefully I'm not contractually obligated to release another book with them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably should write that in your to-do list. Yeah, <laughs> double check on that uh, one. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, that'll, that'll be out uh, or probably spring of '09. Awesome, awesome. And there's a Chris has two Hall of Fames that he's written that'll be in it. So which one's the uh, Opeth and Catatonia? No, no uh, I believe Albert had told me that it would be the Cannibal Corpse, Doom Immediate, and Opeth. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I get one. I think it, I'm 90 percent sure it's Opeth. Okay. Yeah. That's definitely Doom Immediate, though. Damn. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, just to sort of wrap things up, just uh, kind of pick your brain, you know, since we you do typically kind of play, you know, some music on a lot of the podcasts and stuff, even though we had a special opportunity to talk to Albert today about something very related to our podcast. Um, kind of get into just a few of maybe your favorite death metal records coming out of the, the Choosing Death book, but I'll start first with, uh, you've, you've always mentioned that you're in your opinion like the essential sort of death metal record is necroticism from Carcass yes and, and I, I, I not that I disagree with you I'm just kind of curious uh, you know as to what makes it that record for you and, and for the sort of the metal world I see yeah. a blog post on this year <laughs> one, of my, one of my daily requirements satisfied um, for me um, you know again it's it's something that we talked about earlier in this podcast, maybe in even the At the Gates podcast, um, it's, it's that kind of moment in time mm-hmm. for you when you're kind of exposed to something, um, and you know that's a record that's like a 91, 92. People are hearing that, mm-hmm. and it is. It's really heavy. It's really fast. It's really melodic. It's really catchy. It's not one of any of the. It's not defined. Solely by any of those things, it's yeah. All of those things—they're free. They free themselves from grindcore at that point. They're—I mean—they're whatever they want it to be. And it's just like—I mean, I, I love Carcass for a lot of reasons. I think that you know, I, I think the humor in that band is often—I think even occasionally lost on them. Um, but like, you know, I think it, it, it's an element. Their, their whole presentation, um, like, I love the cover. Mm-hmm. I love I love that I can't I, I love that I can't even really read the text in the CD booklet because it's like whoever laid it out I think it may have been Martin isn't it green? I no no that, you're thinking of the old head shirts oh yeah but these are but they're, they're heads in the booklet but like it's, it's basically like whites on white grays and just like it's a total mess <laughs> but like I just I don't know, for me, that record is just, like, definitive of a super exciting 
era. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for me and Chris, when song. we got that CD, we looked, I don't know how many I times we listened to it. Yeah, we just sat there. He had like a little boombox, and he sat in the foot of his bed, and just like, oh my god. Yeah, there are so many catchy riffs. Yeah. I mean, it's. It, I mean, and, and again, it's just like yeah. I can't like to, to to try to isolate like one thing about that record that defines it. It's to me, it, it is that it has all of those elements, and they're all just like distributed equally throughout the whole mm-hmm. thing. And I like. Is there any particular like pairings of songs or a couple songs that come to mind? I mean, obviously, Corporal Jigmore Quandary is right. the, the most well-known song on the record, but is there maybe a personal favorite from uh, being that that sort of younger, you know, oof. teenager kind of grabbing a hold of that record? Yeah, I mean, Pedigree Butchery <laughs> and Incarnate Solid Abuse. Yeah, uh, is so catchy. It's I mean, it's ridiculous how catchy those. Mm-hmm brutal death metal songs are and I don't know I mean I, I'm just kind of I know I'm just bouncing all over the place just trying to think of things about it but I mean Jeff's voice Jeff didn't sound like anybody else yeah you know and, and how low Bill got with the growls and yeah I mean lyrically they were like yeah. I didn't really know what to think. There's all this like mysticism surrounding them, like, oh, there are these medical students that dropped out of school. I remember that. I remember this stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, this was us being stupid right. teenagers and buying into this stuff as well. But Yeah, and, and they definitely wanted to perpetuate that. Idea. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when really it was just, you know, Jeff's sister had a medical textbook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just a mysticism to that band. I remember. Yeah, I I got I had you know because I'm almost not a generation behind you guys, but you know four grades behind these guys. So I was in eighth grade when they graduated in high school, you know, kind of thing. So I gra- I got heart work when I was a freshman in high school or something. Which then I mean that blew my head completely up, and then went back and got the chronicism. But those two records kind of as a pairing, you know, yeah, uh, hold a very special. I mean, I go back to those records probably more than almost old any old. You know, death metal record outside of maybe you know Alters of Madness and you know Left Hand Path and Clandestine, right. and, you know yeah, some I mean, of that stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's like I don't, I don't know how anybody could argue that that isn't at the very least just a top five death metal. Sure, album. you know what I mean? Oh, easily, easily. It should just be in everybody's. And I, but it's weird, you know. I know people who are like the biggest carcass freaks in the world, and they are like, you know, it's like symphonies. It's all about symphonies, or it's all about reek, and then they get to necroticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know I mean. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's 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 strange, and there's people who are just all about hard work. Yeah, um, it's kind of four different era. I mean, each album was its own kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, just like at the gates, they were their own. Yeah, they were going through something. From that from that early era, what are a couple other would you say essential death metal releases outside of Necroticism for for you, or just as a as a journalist or you know a connoisseur expert on? Death metal, you know. Um, if if somebody had to go get five records, necroticism like maybe being one of them. Necroticism, yeah. the cause of death is another one. Obituary, okay. Um, uh, a morbid angel record, and I think you could. I honestly think you could just pick one of the first three, mm-hmm. and like <laughs> anyone would be representative. Like if you, yeah. you don't have a personal favorite, or is it sort of? I actually, my personal favorite is Covenant, but I'm often like in the minority with that. I'm, I'm the same way. Yeah, I had a cassette tape in eighth grade. Just, <laughs> I remember we we sat there and we looked at Tomb of the Mutilated and Covenant and had to decide which one we were going to buy. And 
uh, one of my buddies bought Tomb of the Mutilated and I bought Covenant and mm. I don't know for me personally I won out so yeah you did yeah. <laughs> um, pretty happy with that decision I mean I, I would say left hand path but mm-hmm. I think it was probably like about four or five months ago I had this like weird revelation or went through this uh, period where I started to believe that like an ever flowing stream was a better record back to front I think it is yeah. you're actually he's, not that far off yeah yeah I think uh, that's why we, <laughs> yeah right yeah I, that's why I think Mark and I decided to do Dismember podcast before in tune there's something just more it's visceral yeah it's, I mean like so you know either one of, I'd say like I know I'm I'm definitely like getting off easy when I'm doing it like this, but I'd say either one of those two. Sure. Um, and you know, I mean, it, it verges more into grindcore, but like I'd say, repulsion horrified. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's so hard to. I mean, if if we're gonna just like stick like to just like death metal, death metal, then you know, I could probably rule out repulsion. I could probably rule out even at the gates. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can. You, you know. I mean, you can open up however you want to. You know, really. So. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I it's definitely like. I mean, autopsy, mental funeral. I mean, it's just. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tough. Right? It, it is tough. It is tough. So. Yeah. But uh, anyhow, we uh, we appreciate you. You know, straining here with three hours of sleep. We've kept you late at the office. Uh, you know, where, where, else, where else do I have to be? Yeah, right? yeah. Well, at least there's not a night game for the yeah. Phillies, the, Phillies, right? the Phillies have already won so. this afternoon, so, <laughs> so I, pretty much I, everything's taken care of. Yeah, no, the know. world is. The magazine's gone to print. We saw it at the gates. The Phillies have won. We got podcasts done. It's, I don't really know what more somebody could ask. It's been a good day. You know, we had Philly cheesesteaks for the first time today, traditional. Yeah, so, like Christmas yeah. today. I mean, this is like we saw the Liberty Bell a couple of days ago. I mean, this is this is hot damn. You know, freedom and, and yeah. fat. You know, you going know, crazy. It's, it's getting late, and there's the Wawa outside. We can around uh, nine o'clock here in Chinatown. Things can get really interesting. We can show you a lot more Philly. Uh-oh. Isn't, on any, isn't on any tourist brochures. Uh, no, no. <laughs> But, Maybe in the back of Philly Weekly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I got gotcha. you. Um, well, anyways, we we really appreciate you, you know, uh, being here with us, Albert, and recording a couple podcasts with us. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Hey, anytime. Great. Anytime. And uh, if you have any responses or disagreements with uh, the, the, some of the death metal records that we we sort of threw up there, uh, you can email us at, at requiempodcast at gmail dot com. And you can also find links uh, to this podcast on the Decibel website, which is decibel.com? Decibelmagazine.com. And the decibelblog.com. Decibelblog.com, which Chris here is uh, in charge of. And nope, not in charge of. Oh, not in charge of. I'm just charge. my contributor. Contributing. I contribute to it. Assignment. It has no true leader, which is the beauty of it. Right. It's just... Um, it's a rebel state. Yeah. It's kind of like the like it's kind of like that little weird zone between Canada and the U.S. The wild <laughs> there's actually no legal, yeah. you know, uh, there's no statehood, there's no nationality. If you, if you go through that and you get arrested, you're literally in legal limbo. Yeah, and so you go to like that. Or, exactly or you go to Guantanamo. You know, one of the two. So. You can't go to Guantanamo. There's no country has the right. I, and the reason why I know this is because when I was on tour with Amorphous, we can cut this out. When I was on tour with Orpeth and Amorphous, uh, we went through this little no man's land, and the guy said, "If you get arrested here, you stay here." There's, it's like 
like being arrested in the middle of the ocean. It's like purgatory? Yeah, absolutely. There's, wow. there's no nation owns this like literally like quarter mile of land. Really? It's it's like it's technically it's lawless. Well, who can arrest you? If it's lawless, who can? Apparently, there's e, there's jurisdiction between the Canadian federal police mm-hmm. and the U.S. federal police. Mm-hmm. I smell and the vlog. In either one of you, mm-hmm. okay. I smell the vlog on this one. Either one of those countries <laughs> have jurisdiction to either arrest you or release you, and you have, you don't get you don't get put into the country in which you're arrested. You stay in that little. So can either like can they work together to get you arrested sure or could. get you released? I'm sure they could. I think they should have a reality show where these people have to set up a real society on this strip of land. I think it'd be fascinating. Better than Rock the Love Thing? Yeah, yeah. That's true. That's Will true. he ever find love? Well, Will he ever find, find out next week on the Requiem Metal Podcast. I'm Mark Rudolph. I'm Jason Hundy. I'm Chris Dick. Uh, Albert Mudring.
Do you find transcription frustrating? <laughs> what was your favorite transcription? Oh my god, don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I don't That's watch the kind of transcription. I don't, because my memory is about as... Uh, the transcription one? of Carcass Hardwork. The interview? The interview. It's the one I typed up at Kinko's. Kinko's and uh, you were like literally on the last that. line and the computer went... Mm. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> and I typed like... We got there like 11 o'clock at night and it was like 4 in the morning and he finally goes, oh yeah, I'm kind of done and then all of a sudden the computer dies out and he was like, I lost it. He didn't Uh, save at all. I'm like, oh, well. That's before Word had developed the thing that would auto-save. This is on Claris Works, I think. It was on Claris Works, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. Hey, I used Claris Works up until like five years ago. (laughs) Six years ago. 